My name's Claire Press, and I'm Vogue Australia's Sustainability Editor. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis, the podcast that unzips fashion's issues. Do you mind if I move the microphone? I just, I need to lounge. <laughs> Devotion, darling. Shada. I think as humans, we are major forces to be also reckoned with. And I think creativity always flourishes when there is any type of crisis. That's been the absolute pleasure, is watching talented people who have skills far and beyond mine come together and work collectively. Einstein always said, nature has all the answers. Just look to nature, it has all the answers. Just because I happened to be able to source them easiest, I guess, I was buying original wool jackets from the 1950s. I was buying them at Portobello Market. And a one man's rubbish is another man's gold. For me, it was about age. It was about the attitude of people. And it's about how they're wearing the clothes, why they're wearing the clothes, and capturing a bit of their wisdom and empowering people to look at aging differently. Join me every week as we talk ethics, sustainability and the business and madness of fashion. From who made your clothes to how they impact on the environment to the politics of personal style. We are so hot right now. (laughs) Happy New Year, my lovelies. What are some of the awesome things that you did in 2018? And what plans and goals do you have for 2019? If they're in the eco, sustainable, climate action, plastic pollution beating, zero waste space, or ethical fashion, obviously, let me know. I'd love to hear. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Mrs. Press. What about me? I've had a crazy year. It's been filled with new experiences, meeting brilliant people, lots of travel, a new book, and some really big sustainability stuff. I think my highlights would have to be the book tour for Rise and Resist. And thank you to everyone who came along to see me at various events in Australia and also in Europe. It was so great to meet you all. Um, Starting my Vogue Australia role, of course, as sustainability editor at large. And also being named the first global ambassador for the Ellen MacArthur Foundation's Make Fashion Circular initiative. If you missed that, that just happened. I can't wait for the work we're going to be doing next year. I also loved the events that I worked on with Copenhagen Fashion Summit and Fashion for Good, and of course, all the people I met through them. Another highlight would be joining Common Objective. Have you guys all done that? It's actually free and it's a great networking tool in the sustainability space. I loved getting to know the founder, Tamsin Lejeune, and her brilliant team. And I'm actually one of the judges for Common Objectives Leadership Awards. So if there are any designers or brands listening, do check that out. It gives your business the opportunity to be recognised. And I'll share a link. But you can find Common Objective at www.commonobjective.co. However, by far the best thing about last year for me was making this podcast and having these conversations with you. I'd love to know if you have any favourite interviews. It's good at the end of the year, isn't it, to look back on all the stuff that you've done and all the people you've met. Was it Ellen MacArthur's Extraordinary Story? That was a highlight for me. Or you know what people really loved? The interview with James from Outland Denim. That one did really well when it came to the stats and also got lots of feedback on that one. How about Christina Dean on fighting fashion waste? Another one I think really resonated. 
Oh, and also absolutely Lola Young on modern slavery. I think that's probably, if I can pick one, the episode I'm most proud of. I also love talking to Roland Murray about his fashion life and his green awakening. That was the first time that Roland had talked about sustainability in public or in the media. Also, Safia Mini, I'd always wanted to interview her. And Sebastian from Veja, you know, the sneakers. Oh, look, it's actually quite hard for me to pick because they're all my favourites. That's that thing people always say about their work, isn't it? They're all my children, don't make me pick. Anyway, thank you to everyone who's contributed to my crowdfunding campaign so far. We've reached the first target, which is so exciting. It means that we've got the money to make the first 10 episodes and Series 3 will be going ahead. But we do still need more. The campaign is live until February the 7th. So if you haven't already, please do check it out. The website, which is a bit of a mouthful, is www.posible.com forward slash project, forward slash wardrobe, hyphen crisis, hyphen podcast, hyphen series, hyphen three, the number three. But I'll share a link in the iTunes blurb. Can you share it? Can you tell your friends? Can you recommend the podcast? I'd be super grateful for any of that kind of assistance. All right. So now on to the very last show of series two. My plan was actually to get this up earlier, but I've just had so much on and I'm not going to worry about it. It turns out it's a good thing because I quite love the idea of wrapping up this series on the very last day of this big year. Our guest is Tamra Ginchik, founder of Fashion Roundtable. A former stylist, she used to work for ID and she once styled a Topshop campaign. In the 2000s, when I was in my early 20s writing for Rolling Stone, Tamra used to style the English pop star Sophie Ellis Bexter. Do you remember her? Murder on the dance floor? I mention that because I once interviewed her. And ditto, a little later, another of Tamara's former clients, Natasha Khan of Bat for Lashes. She's amazing. So anyway, Tamara and I both have had these colourful former lives and we're both really interested in politics and the intersection of politics and fashion. Today, Tamara runs a policy organisation called Fashion Roundtable. And while I was in London, she invited me to one of their meetings at Westminster with the Fashion and Textiles All-Party Parliamentary Group. It was really interesting, not least because of the context. In June, the Environmental Audit Committee, which is a select committee of the House of Commons, announced it would be looking into fast fashion, inquiring into the carbon, resource use and water footprint of clothing throughout its life cycle, and also looking at how clothes can be recycled and how waste and pollution can be reduced. Over the next few months, loads of industry insiders, many of whom have been guests on this podcast, I'm talking about Christopher Rayburn, and Olivia Firth, who is coming up in Series 3, they made submissions. Now, it's about time, says Tamara, that fashion stepped up its engagement with the political system because things like Brexit and modern slavery legislation really affect our industry. And now, in the UK at least, MPs are very interested in what fashion is doing to clean up its supply chains and environmental impact. We are actually recording this not in the hallowed halls of the House of Commons, but surrounded by forest in Highgate. It's lovely. Thank you. It's nice here, isn't it? It's um, quite green for London. It makes me happy to be surrounded by nature. Yeah, that's why we moved here. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea of this podcast is to talk about not fashion and nature, but fashion and politics. Uh-huh. I told you I was going to call this episode that and I was excited because I feel like those two terms have not often come together. Except they both have a front row. Ah. So the hierarchies are quite similar. 
elaborate? So a lot of people within the industry on the creative side have an ambition to get to the front row (laughs) and then stay there and you can feel quite judged, I think, by whether you're standing got a ticket third row front row oh my row. god I know this and yeah then it's row D <laughs> I, I don't mind row three actually it's it's okay with me but a lot of people it's very um, I've stopped caring yeah a very uh concerned by it and um the UK parliament anyway works on the same system of the front bench so you have front bench ministers um and shadow ministers and then you've got people on the back benches. So in the Conservative Party, you've got the 1922 committee, which are back benches, essentially. And the debate at the moment is whether they're behind their leader or not. Oh, yeah. Well, we're going to get into that. <laughs> I studied politics at university and politics at A-level. And oh, good for you. Yeah. But at the time, I could make no... I don't think I tried. I made no connection between that and fashion. For me, fashion was like a side thing, later a guilty secret, and then later Why still... Why did you feel guilty about it? Well, not very serious, but I don't agree with that. But, mm. you know, that was kind of a thing. If you're studying politics, that's a serious thing. And if you've got an addiction to purple velvet miniskirts, it was the 90s, then that's a separate thing that you keep to yourself. Okay. <laughs> I'd say you were quite Bieber then, quite Bieber influenced. I wanted to be 60s. Yeah, totally. didn't we all... But this conversation is now advancing at a great pace, as so it should, because fashion is, of course, impacting big political issues. So labour rights, mm-hmm. how our industry impacts on the environment. Mm-hmm. But now, and the reason for this conversation, fashion is being discussed at the highest levels of British government. Yeah, I mean, the Environmental Audit Committee has been in, in existence since 1997. And an audit, basically, as it suggests, is checking whether... A system or an operation is working correctly um, and um, select committees operate across many areas of government. So you've got one at the moment on Brexit, you've got one on from the Department of Culture, Sport and Media on Brexit, you've got them on many areas of life. And they're very important because those select committees can really hold government and ministers to account. So for instance, the work that Hillary Benn's done for the exiting the EU it's important to um, to hold government processes to account, but also to engage with the public. So we're recording this in December, just before Christmas in London. In yeah. October, the Environmental Audit Committee, Committee yeah. reported on fast fashion. That's right. And now we're seeing how that develops. Yeah. Some of the things that came out with that first report that became headline news were, for example... About fashion and climate change. So that if Britain continues at the current rate of consumption, then the fashion industry could be responsible for a quarter of Britain's carbon emissions by, I think it was 2050. Well, the thing is, it was then picked up by the BBC. That's where I read it. And my jaw was on the floor because I thought, look at this huge stuff. So it means that then it's picked up by other news agencies and it goes into, say, the Evening Standard here in London or The Guardian or even maybe The Daily Mail might pick it up to go to... So that it's read by everybody that has access to or, or wants to be informed and it starts the penny dropping, which is what I think starts making people that realise that politics isn't othered because it can be very othering because it can take an hour to get into Westminster. Security is understandably tight there. It is in Brussels. I'm sure it is in Washington. So it's very removed and the the Westminster Palace is quite daunting. It's a Gothic building and, you know, it looks like an Oxbridge College 
Um, People don't think that it's their place. No. They don't feel that they can go in even no. when hearings, even when you can go in. Yeah. You could go in and observe. Yeah. People don't know that. We have direct access to it. It's our palace. People don't even know that. So they don't, unless they're into it um, or it becomes normalised for them. But yeah, I mean, you do, if you work there, which I have, you do get people who you realise like to come in and go to things and you see these kind of faces. But, you know, that's also part of it. It's a bit like the fashion shows in a way. There were also the people that like going to fashion shows that might not be in the business. You're not allowed to just go in there though and observe, are you? Well, I've seen them, so I think it happens. (laughs) You used to be able to. Students used to crash shows all the time. I think it's a lot harder But there's all this stuff going on outside that's kind of like the real show in a way, isn't it? This is true. On Wednesday, I attended a meeting with you on the invitation of Fashion Roundtable. It was in Portcullis House at Westminster. Mm -hmm. There were some brilliant women in that room. There was Ursula de Castro, our friend who is a co-founder of Fashion Revolution. There was Baroness Lola Young, who's been on this podcast. There were representatives from Common Objective, the Sustainable Angle MPs. So John McNally was there, who's from the Environment Audit Committee, who sits on the all-party group for textiles and fashion. And obviously it was chaired by Dr Lisa Cameron, who's the chair of the APPG. They're called APPGs. I might end up calling the Environmental Audit Committee the EAC because it's just life's too short for long words sometimes. Okay. Yeah, so, so we is- had lots of people in the room. I mean, it was it was a small room <laughs> and I was aware that we were going to have a lot of people there. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, we did an event on IP and uh, we had a much bigger room, but with all the negotiations going on at the moment... With Brexit. With Brexit, room bookings are very tight. Okay, but what is Fashion Roundtable? If you could just... Fashion Roundtable is an organisation I set up a year and a couple of weeks ago and... We are looking at policy, we are looking at lots of areas around the fashion industry and supporting a more inclusive understanding of the industry and a more inclusive approach. I called it Roundtable A because that's what Parliament works under, but also because of King Arthur, because it's what? about <laughs> it's a round table and it's about including different voices. And actually, the very concept of the round table smashes the concept of hierarchy and front yeah, row. Yeah, it's not about the triangle, it's about the circle. So we've got people from inside the industry who are experts across their fields, be that fashion um, creative or buying or merchandising or actually also sustainability, because we've got Anna from the Centre for Sustainable Fashion on our team. But we've also got economics experts, such as Professor Swati Dingra, who is Associate Professor at the LSE of of Economics. I've also got Brexit experts, I've got an EU expert, I've got political experts. And then I've got a bunch of advisors, such as um, Harold Tillman, who was the former Chief Executive of the British Fashion Council, Francis Card, who was COO of Matches Fashion. So we've got a broad, and then also Zoe Broach from the RCA, who's an old friend of mine. So we've got a broad range of people who are strategically placed, but no one had ever done that before, whereas in other industries that's quite normalised and formalised, that they have think tanks, policy agendas, lobbying support, papers written, um, and therefore can work on policy and lobby for parliamentary questions and what that means is it becomes part of the conversation because other industries such as fishing which makes 1.4 billion GVA for the UK economy have really been a focus of the Brexit conversation and used by the Leave campaign as a reason for leaving and I was at a meeting on Monday about the great new work that's being done to develop uh, 
a system of support for the fashion industry from design to delivery with people like Jenny Holland from Fashion Enter and UKFT behind it and also London College of Fashion. And East London alone makes 1.4 billion really? GVA for the UK economy a year. So Stephen Timms, who's the MP for one of those constituencies, has as a consequence joined the APPG because it just means that they can see the value because we were invisible. And I don't the fashion think industry. the fashion industry was invisible. It was insane. Uh, to me, that's insane. Because it's a giant employer. It's huge. And it needs not to be just put as, oh, yes, those nicely dressed people over there. Those flaky creatives. Yeah, or those, you know, oh, another party. Because, yeah, we all love a party and we all love dressing up. But the industry is more than that. And um, that should be like the Christmas party rather than just how we're perceived you're going to have crushed the dreams of many a student who thinks <laughs> yeah, the I don't point. want to sound like I'm in fame but it is a lot of hard work in the industry <laughs> okay so what exactly does fashion roundtables seek to do I think that that always shifts in a lot of ways but my focus that I work on is the policy I go to lots of meetings with Whitehall and with other federations and with other organizations and we do research and policy, but we also host events. I like doing workshops, for instance. I came to one. Yeah, I've done, I've done three, I think, in the last month. So the workshop offer, as well as the talks and events, I think mentoring needs to be a big part of it because I think between the fashion team, we've got over 100 years' experience in the fashion industry and it's many changes. And, um, and then more papers. So our next paper will be on ethnic representation in the fashion industry. That will be next year. But we're also working with academics on a mapping exercise of retail and the changes. And I'm also at the very beginning of looking at why film gets tax breaks and fashion doesn't. Oh, really? And why film... Your partner's a film director or a works in film, He's right? a focus puller, camera operator. I happen to know that you styled magazines, shows, yeah. but I was interested in... <laughs> Because I interviewed okay. the birds, Sophie Ellis Bexter and Natasha oh, Gunn from Bat for Lashes. <laughs> my girls. My girls. I'm showing my age. <laughs> <laughs> Sophie Ellis Bexter is probably when I worked at Rolling Stone when I was about, I don't know, how old? She's done, yeah, she's had a good run. But just tell me very briefly about your styling. When I started, I was really impassioned about telling stories. I'm an English graduate, so I taught myself. But how did you get into it? I kind of fell into it. Uh, In my last year at UCL, my best friend's family owned Browns. I didn't know anybody else. And I got an internship in the press office. What, Mrs B? Mm, She's my best friend's grandma. Is she? Yeah. Mrs B is a constant reference point in this podcast. Right. So Mrs Burstein is grandma to my best friend, Jessie, who lives in New York. From that, I had more internships and got in with a woman called Debbie Mason, who had just left British Elle. Then I went travelling. I went to India. I came back. I got an internship at Vogue. Debbie had spoken... Who did you work for? Well, Debbie had spoken about Anna Coburn, who then had gone to Mademoiselle with her. She'd come back, and I, I got in with Anna. I loved Anna. And I worked with her for a couple of years. Then I worked for some other people... But those two were really the special ones for me. I started testing and working and then I very quickly got in with a photographer and was um, within a few months I was doing, I did the first campaign for Topshop. My game plan was to get into ID, 
And then I got into ID. We were kind of like the left fieldy, slightly boho-y. You know, I had been traveling and was dressed in secondhand vintage and then doing shoots that were very layered. And I also, I think actually a good stylist is a lot of processes, I think, to be good at the job, have to go into what you're doing. You have to analyze both the time, the mood and yourself. Otherwise, I don't think you're going to last. Okay, fast forward. Mm. How on earth did you make that jump into working in the political system? I had my son. I didn't like the way the government were doing things. I didn't like paying £60 a day for childcare. I was already a member, but very dormant of the Labour Party. I got invited to hear talks. I thought they made sense. I then was invited to apply for a mentoring scheme. On the Fabian Women's Network, I had huge imposter syndrome because these women were all incredible. And I was like, you know... Well, it's just a different world. It's a complete... I think people would have it if they saw our world. Yeah, they do. No, they do. They do massively. But also they were very much more vocal about their ambitions. But it gave me a space to connect with women who are hugely smart, hugely engaged. Then my mentor offered me a job. Sharon Hodgson, who is Shadow Public Health and a Northeastern MP. I was working for her part time. I was still styling. She allowed me to go to every single Brexit meeting. She knew I was because I was a key Remainer and had campaigned and stepped out of my comfort zone to do so. And Hilary Benn was being interviewed. And I realised in this massive room in Portcullis House that I definitely was the only person from the fashion industry. So I asked him if I could host a roundtable. And my boss was fine with that. And loads of people came. The idea behind this podcast and looking at fashion and politics, or the spark for it, is the, I'm using the acronym now because I'm in the club. Okay. The EAC. The EAC, yeah. So... You've got this extraordinary, to me anyway, moment in history where you've got the Labour MP, Mary Cray, who is the chair of the Environmental Audit Committee, saying, I mean, hear it, I've written a statement from her here that I'm going to read out. She's saying, the way we design, produce and discard our clothes has a huge impact on our planet. Fashion and footwear retailers have a responsibility to minimise their environmental footprint and make sure workers in their supply chains are paid a living wage. We want to hear what they're doing to make the industry more sustainable. Mm. It's great. Yeah, I mean, I strong. love that we've got MPs addressing these big issues in fashion yeah. and also calling to account, saying, actually, what are you doing? What the committee did was they wrote to the CEOs of 10 yeah. of the biggest fashion companies in the UK, including Marks & Spencer's, Primark, Next, Arcadia, which owns Topshop, and various others, Debenhams. And she asked them to respond on things like, are you paying a living wage to garment workers? How mm-hmm. do you ensure child labour is not used in your supply chains? Mm-hmm. Are you using recycled materials? I mean, the scope is pretty big. Like, how long are clothes kept in the loop? How are you encouraging recycling? Whether they incinerate unsold stock well that's also because what happened which was not news to anybody in the fashion industry was the story was exposed about Burberry burning over 29 million pounds worth of clothes now we in the fashion industry have known that this happens and Burberry are not alone but obviously of those big kind of like single name massive brands arguably they're the only British one I think for MPs, they will have read that and the public have read that. And, you know, that's the kind of publicity money can't buy, really. It's very damaging. And, you know, there was somebody from Burberry at the hearing because they want to um, counterbalance and remedy really bad PR. But I wonder, would they have done it so quickly had they not been exposed? But I celebrate the fact that they're addressing the issue now. 
I mean, I think that they're looking at fast fashion, but they're also looking at the luxury market. They're trying to understand what can be done about supply chain, about slavery, about delivery, about logistics. Everything. Microfibers. Microfibers. Climate change. Yeah, climate change, growth models. It's an unwieldy thing, isn't it? Because it's just everything. I mean, even in our meeting on Wednesday, the agenda was so big. I like that we've got big ideas, but the issues to cover in Wednesday's meeting included supply chain transparency, modern day slavery, environmental concerns of fast fashion, ethical concerns of fashion, how to be sustainable in a growth model and fashion tech. I mean, it's just everything. It's such a big stuff. But also who should bear the brunt of this? Because I think that that's the issue is that I don't think that you can put the onus on the brands. I think a lot of brands are doing what they can. I genuinely believe the guy from ASOS, Simon, who is trying to source organic cotton and is trying to stop them overproducing. I don't see why he would make that up. I've heard that from other people, such as Jenny Holland, who manufactures for him in London. So I think they are genuinely trying to do the best they can. But at the same time, I'm not into the idea of this kind of patronising training the consumer at all. And I'm really not into making the single mother with three kids on a very low income feel bad about her consumer choices. I'm about trying to support them having better options at a price they can afford. But we do have to address the fact that people have got hooked into going out and coming back. I see it on the tube with five bags of clothes. You don't need five bags of clothes. I mean... My love of fashion came from vintage from a really young age and it was the quality. And then I ended up in the fashion industry in the luxury end, which was again about quality. So I have never been that average high street consumer that thinks about buying five bags of clothes on a hit. But I have had discount cards from the high street and I have used them and then I've analysed, but I don't like this stuff and I'm not wearing it enough. And if I get something that I love, I wear it more. So I've had that conversation, but I haven't even known about because I think it's very difficult to understand for anybody, even someone in the industry, that the supply chain of a big luxury brand can be as challenging as a fast fashion brand. And that's really horrendous to work out. We uh, don't discuss it half as much no, because, because actually, we don't know. We don't know. So if we will share a link to the latest Fashion Revolution Transparency Index from 2018, but we still find that even though progress is being made, it's actually some of the big luxury names yeah. that don't report on this stuff at all. No, because Prada. it's an opt-in. It's an opt-in as well across things. So what Lola Young is doing, which you've obviously covered, is to stop declarations of modern slavery in the supply chain for big brands being an opt-in across the private and the public sector and I think that's to be applauded Mm. because people need to look around at who's cleaning the floor what are they on how many jobs are they holding down and I would take that further as you know who's in the structures in an organization because if you have privilege going on in an organization they are not going to be clued up to who's doing the cleaning who's doing the driving and the conditions that they're in I don't think it's as easy for them okay we've gone down a rabbit hole because it's so complex you can look at this from any aspect yeah. but I want to just pull this back to okay you're not a fan of saying 
you know, let's train the consumer to... I'm not a fan in patronising the consumer. I think that things like Stacey Dooley on TV talking about fast fashion had a great effect because she's at the, she was at the same time on Strictly. Not that I watched Strictly, but a client of mine was on Strictly a couple of years ago. It's so just I, FYI, I, everyone in Britain is obsessed with Strictly Ballroom. Apart from me, <laughs> <laughs> sorry. But, um, yeah, so, you know, that meant that that gave it an audience. But I think that you have to... And I don't have the answer to this, but I'm learning. But intuitively, I grew up on a council estate and I'm really not into patronising people from low incomes. I think it's tough enough. And austerity in this country means that it's got tougher. But whose responsibility is it to clean up fashion? Because we're talking about policy. Well, it's not the consumers, is it? I think the consumer has got used to shopping like that because it's been made cheaper and easier. And because of the fashion industries uh it started before instagram but you know people in the fashion industry are making a career out of getting in and out of a car with a phone in their hand going to the fashion shows wearing five outfits a day and then that translates down the supply chain if you like of visibility so that you've got an instagram culture now of the girl next door wearing five different outfits and guess where they're shopping for them Mm -hmm. they're not swishing they're not shopping in their wardrobe or whatever other ethical solutions there might be swishing is swapping yeah they're just, you know, they're not going to the back of their wardrobe. They're buying new stuff. Okay, so culture is pushing us towards consuming more, inverted commas, disposable fashion. But whose responsibility is it to clean up fashion? I think the government has to... I think it's the government. I think the government has to look at what policies it's going to want to put in place. But that's a whole bigger issue about the growth model because Western politics is based on a growth model. And I think that that's at the core of possibly the concern that mary's raising and that caroline lucas who's also on the um, committee is raising but that will be interesting because the labor party as i understand it is working within western politics well all the parties are which is not and we hardcore to smash the concept yeah. to smash the idea that success is based on gdp or a successful country a country Well, GDP is one thing, but if you've got staff working on zero-hour contracts, if you've got staff working on very low wages, if you read about what happened in Leicester, you've got machinists working on £3 or less an hour, then what are they going to buy with their money? How are they going to pay for their housing and their food? What kind of food decisions? Because food has very similar issues to fashion. It's a cultural shift that we've seen in one generation and I don't know that we're going to you know independently the UK can't get there which is why Brexit's so emotive because the strategies that are coming from the EU towards sustainable fashion are leaders I don't know if your Australian and global audience are going to understand quite how emotive the Brexit conversation's been for people here 96% of us voted remain according to our data which is a survey that we created around Brexit I think the BFC put it at 90. I've only so met of the fashion industry. Of the fashion industry. I've I've only met three. <laughs> um, <laughs> three people in three total. Three people in total. And their, their discussions of trade deals are not aligned with the reality of the fact that we are going to be, if we agree to what Mrs May wants, we're going to be law takers, not lawmakers. So we won't be able to strike out until transition's over, which could go on and on and because of the Irish backstop question. So Brexit's very emotional here because it's an industry based on fluid movement, fluid movement of goods, fluid movement of services, meaning talent. So somebody who works in London 
as a creative, which is my background, could get a phone call and say, can you get on the last train? Can you get the clothes? Can you travel? And you can do that very easily. There's no carnet, there's no visa, there's no delays. And God, I haven't actually thought about yeah. it on this to, in that line. And it's the same for the show. So the meeting I was in yesterday, they're talking about the 29th of March. And I'm like, well, you know, Paris ends, what, first, second week of March... And then, you know, the buying's happening because a lot of the buying for London brands actually takes place in Paris because a lot of the buyers want to go to Paris rather than come here and that's an issue for London fashion. And what then what happens? So there's a debate around whether if you've sold it at the time before March 29th, whether that means that you don't need all this paperwork. I mean, it's kind of like I'm there with civil servants who are experts it's at negotiations and, and it's not because of them. And it's not because they're not intelligent and super hardworking. I believe they all are. But it's just the lack of clarity coming It's going to be chaos. But drilling down to what this means for trade and what this means immediately, it's terrifying, isn't it? What do you do when you run a fashion business not knowing how to plan? When you consider relocation options, which is what's happening. Really? Yeah. Oh, and you have made in Britain, a large part of which is the sustainable fashion industry, because there's lots of SMEs, which are small businesses. I think we have like 57,000 in the UK. And that could be one person on on their own, or it could be three to 10 people. That is your average fashion business in this country. And even for them, even if it's made in Britain, which is a hugely potent marketing tool, up to 75% of the components that go into that will or could be from overseas I don't think you can make a zip in the UK so everything's coming from supply chains a lot of which is paid for in in euros not in pounds so they've already been hit by the damage that's happened to the exchange rate on the pound since the EU referendum vote so they've already been hit by that so Swati who spoke at our Brexit event reckons there's going to be a four to six percent lost to the economy and we but we've already been hit by four percent from just from that exchange rate loss so that's very difficult for a brand Catherine Hamnett I forgot to mention Catherine Hamnett when I mentioned influential women in the room only the queen yeah the queen's a bit of a fan of fashion roundtable which means that I must be doing something right because she's the queen of disruption and the queen of disruption likes me so you know she designed a t-shirt that supported our Brexit campaign and she was that actually part of fashion roundtable yeah the 96% voted Remain is from our policy paper that we brought out in the spring. And uh, Nick Knight and Show Studio are really supportive of us. So they let us um, do like a panel discussion to talk about it, which they aired. Yeah. I wanted it to be not just Remain voices, because otherwise it's an echo chamber, which is what Fashion Roundtable really wants to stop. And um, I had Lucy Harris, who's the head of an organisation called Leavers for Britain and a a guy called Darren Grimes who works for the Institute of Economic Affairs. Both are young, very keen on a hard Brexit. (laughs) She took a jacket off and had her cancelled Brexit T-shirt. Of course, that was the photo moment (laughs) and I was like, oh God, here we go. (laughs) I've brought in the radical auntie. All right, these are rapid questions. Do you think government's going to get more active in trying to regulate fast fashion? I think it really depends on what happens in the next few months in the UK. I think that globally, it really depends on what happens with the states and climate change. And I think that the UN and the EU are doing what they can across it, yeah. Do you think that fashion designers and people who work within the industry need to step up their engagement in politics and to try to 100%. 
100% because if you've worked in Westminster, which I have, you know, the car manufacturing industry is in there all the time. Fishing obviously has had a very big voice in the Brexit negotiations. Chemicals are in there. The unions are in there. You know, even sugar are in there. I mean, literally, I've been at Everyone meetings with clothes. sugar. Yeah. And then there's me representing, quite often on my own, representing a £30 billion industry. What can young people involved in fashion, perhaps their designers or wanting to be designers, do to try and get involved in this process? So what we're going to set up next year is a membership model for Fashion Roundtable. At the moment, they just need to sign up to our newsletter and then, you know, they can hear about events. And as we scale up, they can be a part of it. We'll share a link. Thank Um, you. Do you have any tips for how people listening to this and feeling a bit overwhelmed by the breadth of the issues might get involved? I always say hop on the Fashion Revolution website because there's lots of stuff there. There's lots of stuff there. And we write articles as well around lots of different issues around inclusion around sustainability, around Brexit, around policy. We send out our newsletter every Tuesday and um, that has lots of different articles. We've got a brilliant writer called Lottie who is a disability activist, for instance. And even ideas around that I'd never really thought about as, as someone in the luxury industry. It makes you think. There are so many entry points to this conversation to get more aware, to get woke, to get involved. And I think it's yeah. about finding your way in. Yeah, and also like... I don't criticise the industry because I hate it. I love it. Same. I loved, you know, styling shows and working on fashion shoots and creating stories with pictures. It's not that I hated it. So I'm not coming from a place of angst about the industry because I've, I've been very lucky to have been in it. But I just don't think that ignorance is bliss. I'd like to finish up with a call to arms or an action point. Whatever country you're in, because obviously your reach is global and this has been quite UK focused. I think if there's something you don't like, I know of issues that are happening in Australia that are really not okay. You need to let your elected representative know your feelings because they are your elected representative. And if you look at somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the States, I think she's hugely inspiring. You know, that shows the power of people getting behind the unknown and um, don't think that your vote, your voice doesn't have a value because politics can play on that. It can play on you thinking that you don't have a, a voice, but you do. Oh, it's getting hard. My parents feel that I'm defending you. We tell them all that they are wrong because I love you. Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends all feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you.
Because I love you. Because I love you. Because I love you.